Hello, and welcome to the NPRD podcast with nurse practitioner and registered dietitian Robin Kivit. Eating disorders, body image, medicine, they are all interconnected. But with so many programs, techniques, and advice to choose from, it's easy to be overwhelmed. Robin, with more than 25 years of experience as a nurse practitioner and registered dietitian, offers help and hope for everyone, families, children, and adults. Along with veteran talk show host and good friend, Jordan Rich, Robin invites you to learn much more right here on the NPRD podcast. Welcome to the NPRD, and we are lucky enough today to have two guests, and they will introduce themselves. We have Fiona LaRosa Waters and Dr. Amy Boyers with us today. Thank you both. Whoever wants to introduce themselves first can go. How about Amy? Okay, sure. Hi, Uh, I'm Amy Boyers. I'm a uh, licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, I've been practicing for over 20 years in the South Florida area. Uh, And for many years, I had a private practice up until very recently when uh, Dr. Wendy Oliver Pite and I started Galen Hope. Uh, I'm in I'm an eating disorder specialist, and um, I've been also a consultant for eating disorder treatment centers over the years. So, um, so this has been a passion of mine for a very long time. Thank you for being on today. Warmer where you are than where we are Fiona today, right? Yeah, not super warm here today, (laughs) but not super cold, which is nice. Fiona, tell us about you. Yeah, I am, um, gosh, what do I do? I I work for Galen Hope right now. Um, I am their director of marketing and communications, Um, but I've been in the field of treatment with a focus on eating disorder treatment, but also working in some substance use um, recovery oriented settings and with primary mental health and trauma for about 12 or 13 years. Um, I got my start and some really great training at a facility in the Boston area that is no longer in existence. And for a number of years did case management, recovery coaching and treatment placements, had a wonderful opportunity to visit treatment centers around the country um, and eventually migrated over into doing a clinical outreach role. Uh, I really just have discovered that I love connecting people to resources, um, working with both professionals and families and clients to get them the resources they need, whether it's inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, um, community resources, any and all of the above. Um, and then the other thing I really love is communication and words. So to be able to do that component as well and try to take the the message of the work that people do and, and bring that to the community and to take the message of what the community is needing and bring that to the team I work with is really a lot of fun for me. So I think we met, I don't know, nine years ago, something like that. It's been a long time. Yeah. I know we we were both on the now defunct Boston yeah. IF chapter board. And um, yeah, I think we met when I worked for a, a local case management company. Yeah, I think that's right. Right. Yeah. So we're it's cool that there are three of us. We don't usually have three people. Um, well, we do it when I'm in the studio, but we're recording right. 
a different place today. So let's hear about Galen Hope. Is that a good place to start, I think? That's a great place to start. Your co-founder was on with us in the spring, Amy. So Yes, sure, sure. So Wendy and I have known each other for a long time. Um, I was a consultant for her at a previous treatment center, and she and I worked together on program development and actually launched um, a very successful program together. So we had this experience of working together And there's just was always a lot of synergy between us in terms of the way that we approach eating disorders and the way we manage these more complex cases. And um, for a long time in my private practice, I saw that there was, particularly in the South Florida area, but I know South Florida isn't unique, uh, a real lack of comprehensive, sophisticated mental health treatment. And for so long, I was sending a lot of my clients in my private practice, whether they were eating disorder or not, to programs out of state. And then they would come back to Miami and there was really nothing there for them. There was no step down options for them. And that was always such a heavy lift as a uh, clinician in private practice that trying to either assemble a team or cobble together services or be the person that receives them when they're stepping down out of a treatment center. Um, it's its a lot um, that that person's going through a very, very big transition. And it's really the first time that they were really test driving all the skills and knowledge that they acquired in treatment. And so I was just very frustrated that there wasn't more available for my clients in particular. And I just, I saw it not just in my own practice, but in other people's practices and saw so many people from Miami having to leave the area to find what they needed. And Wendy and I both had a lot of experience working with clients outside of the office. So, um, and that's really where you need to be when you're helping someone transition to a lower level of care. Um, You can't just say, go, go back to school or find a job. Like it's not that simple for somebody who's just left the container of a treatment center. And so we both had experiences uh, with assertive community treatment and working with people in this least restrictive environment. And um, for people who've been who've been struggling for a long time, people who maybe have been labeled as treatment resistant, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Wendy and I, I think we both have experiences of working with people who've received that label who actually get much, much better when they are given the right kind of support, the right kind of attuned care. And so that that term treatment resistant is not a term. I don't like, I don't use that term. I know other people, but I have never labeled somebody that I work with as treatment resistant. Um, to me, the onus is on me to figure out what's going to connect for them and help them get better. And so, and Wendy and I really see eye to eye in that way that we leave no stone unturned. And that's really a big part of the, the philosophy of Galen Hope that um, we do take primary eating disorder cases, but we also take primary mental health Mm -hmm. uh, for this exact reason that um, 
that there's just not a lot of places that offer that kind of comprehensive assessment along with that very attuned care where we help to stabilize them, we help them develop the skills, and when they're ready, we really kind of turn around and face the world with them. So an integral part of our care is something that we borrow from assertive community treatment, which is a form of community psychology model of working with people, originally people with severe mental illness, um, to live independently, successfully in the least restrictive environment. And so we incorporate that into our treatment, that everybody who comes to Galen Hope is assigned a team, a therapist, a psychiatrist, a dietitian, and also a care partner. And the care partner is the person who really starts to develop a plan with each client that they work with around life skills, around areas where there may be some deficits, areas where they may need some more support till they can do those things for themselves more appropriately. For the eating disorder clients, a lot of that work is around food and meal prep and body image kind of stuff. I read all about the care partner piece, and that is so interesting to me. Is this someone then that works with a particular patient in like a partial level of care when that step down? The entire time. They're part of the team from day one. So we do have care partners who are in the milieu generally and kind of running the day, but then everybody is assigned a care partner. And in the beginning, when they're at the higher level of care, and they may be needing more of that containment and stabilization, we'll be doing more exposure work with them within the program. And that person is often just another place for them to get support, help them problem solve things that might come up throughout the course of the day. Uh, As the person starts to step down and has more free time, the care partner really steps up to help them figure out what are you going to do with that free time? Where are the areas where we might need to do some skill development and let's practice. So they'll never do it for them. So if somebody's having difficulty keeping their personal space clean and organized, the care partner is not going to go in and clean their apartment for them, but they will sit down with them. They'll create a strategy. They'll talk to them about what aspects of this is most challenging, try to help them figure out why they might be avoiding it, and then sit with them, encourage them, instruct them. Sometimes people need concrete instruction on how to do some of these daily life skills. When you've been struggling for years with a lot of heavy mental health symptoms, it's very easy to fall behind on a lot of those developmental tasks and life skills. And that's a a source of shame for a lot of our clients. It's something that they're embarrassed to admit. We know it's there, we expect it to be there, and we, we do get them to talk about it, but it's something that they are very, very uncomfortable acknowledging. And of course, For all of us who work with clients that need higher levels of care, we know that a lot of times the thing that precipitates a relapse is going back and signing yourself up for a full load of classes or going and getting a full-time job, that it's too much too fast and you didn't have a place to talk about it or you might not have had the organizational skills to get yourself up and out every day. So we try to dip the toe in the water slowly. Let's start with one class while you're at Galen Hope. Like, do we need to take you to school? Do we need to do we need to go and talk to the dean of students to go deal with an incomplete? Do we need to deal with um, I don't know the the short term disability person at the HR department at your job? So all kinds of things that 
become major, major barriers to them moving forward. They want to avoid, they don't want to deal with it. There's a lot of shame about whatever condition they left in. So those are the things that we try to work with them on in a much slower, more attenuated fashion so that when they really discharge from Galen Hope, they've already been doing it. They're already living in the world and starting to reintegrate back into their life. Fiona, is there something you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to share a couple examples. My favorite examples of some of the things our care partners do. Um, when I first started and our lead care partner who has worked in treatment centers for over a decade and really dedicated herself to um, care, gave the example of just body doubling with clients mm-hmm. whose ADHD might be interfering with some of their life skills components. And that's an area I think has been under-recognized and underserved in treatment settings is the ability to make accommodations for clients who are neurodivergent. Um, we expect them to fit into our box, right? So that's something a care partner can do. Um, we had had a client who had um, lost her mother and had never really had that figure to show her how to Um, shop and dress properly for job interviews. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we think shopping for clothes, if a client has had an eating disorder might be problematic because perhaps the size clothing they wear has changed. So clearly we can do some of that, but this was a circumstance where it was really just about helping this young woman work through like shopping and putting together outfits for job interviews as part of the process of trying to go back to work. Um, We had a care partner and a therapist, I believe, go to a dance class with a client. So I just wanted to chime in with some of those examples because those are the stories that really stick out to me. Going into their home space offers so much information because they can come to programming and look put together, but then we go into the home and we may see a very different story, right? And this is often what families talk about. They're they're living in squalor, their room is so disorganized, they're they're not, you know, they're not paying attention to their own self-care. And so being able to go into their living environment and um, be able to work with them there gives us so much data about the full picture of what that person's level of functioning looks like. And I think if you're going to work with people who have had struggles this complex, you, you have to get out of the office. You cannot just be doing the work here in the office. One of the things we talked about offline and then we mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, you said it, Amy, is not using the language treatment-resistant depression or treatment-resistant and I really appreciated appreciated how you use the word attunement and how you're bringing in community. And when Wendy was on, you know, we talked a lot about there and we've talked a lot about this across the board with the podcast, like silver linings of pandemic, right? Virtual care mm-hmm. that's within health. Um, but I think in terms of the attunement, what can we use as different language than when we say, we we want to say or we're thinking treatment resistant, but it's not. So so what can we say then? I wonder. I mean, I think a lot about this idea of really needing to understand all the developmental disruptions and all the possibility or potential for um, relationship and attachment difficulties that arise with 
a significant history of a mental health struggle, mm -hmm. um, whether or not that means um, in and out of treatment settings, in and out of hospital settings, that alone, mm -hmm. particularly the hospital type setting can also be traumatizing. Right. But when someone has spent a lot of time in and out of care, um, their development has been interrupted and their ability to form relationships has been interrupted. So those are symptoms that are just as prominent in my mind as the eating disorder behaviors, as the rituals related to the OCD, right? Yeah. Is And this is the piece in terms of being attuned or thinking about people being treatment refractory or resistant that we need to see is that it's gonna be messy Mm. There are going to be issues with the relationships, with the family, with the friends, with with the providers at times. Mm -hmm. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be testing. Um, and there's going to be a lot of developmental pieces that need to be relearned. So, you know, I think one thing that I'm really proud of at Galen Hope is that we don't really kick people out of our program for non-compliance. You know what I mean? Because- Right, you expect that to be part of the picture. Yeah. yeah. Right, that's part of the clinical picture. So punishing them for engaging in the symptoms that brought them in to the program. Yes, we do have limits. There's certain things you cannot do right. in any program, right? We do have to keep people safe. But yeah, I, I, I don't know what the term would be, what would be an alternative to treatment resistant. I mean, I, I, I think that the term treatment resistant also includes a certain conception of what treatment should be that you're adhering to a very rigid set of rules. And yeah. if the client doesn't benefit from the treatment, then they're the failure. Well, right. And right. it's a, a good word, like the, the word shame. So then there's mm -hmm. that, and that's there anyway, mm -hmm. in multi, you know, multifactorially different so, mm -hmm. And And certainly there are people who aren't always ready to do the work um, or there are things that to prevent them from from being able to do the work, financial barriers. However, if if somebody comes to us wanting to do the work and they aren't getting better or they aren't meeting their goals, yes, obviously we need to be turning to the client to look at what what might you be able to change to do this in a different way, but we also have to look at ourselves as clinicians and be able to pivot, be flexible. I think that, you know, as much as I'm a believer in evidence-based care, I also feel like it can be very rigid and very one size fits all. And if you are only trained in one form of evidence-based care, there's going to be a lot of people that you don't help. Right. Because sometimes, depending on where someone is in their developmental trajectory, depending on where they are in their trajectory of their recovery, you may have to pivot. You may just have to be a human being in the room. It may not be about a specific skill or intervention. At that moment, what's oftentimes what people need is an actual human being who's listening to them with their whole heart, being fully invested in their recovery and you can't teach that in school. No, you can't. And that is that right. level of empathy, just the way you said it, Amy, being a human being and having empathy. Sometimes that 
is mm-hmm. is just what another human being needs. Mm-hmm. When I see a client who has been labeled as treatment resistant or who appears to be really stuck, I think my first thought and what I find reflected in the work that Amy and Wendy and our team do is what else is going on here? Or maybe we need to adjust what the goal is right now in this moment. And I think that um, having opened up to getting back into working with primary mental health, which I hadn't done for a number of years, it reminds me that not every diagnosis out there is something that you necessarily recover from, for lack of a better word. Um, I used air quotes for folks who can't see me, right? There are types of mental illness, um, mental health disorders that are just going to be a component of who that person is. And, And with that community psychology and community psychiatry model of treating people in the least restrictive environment possible, I mean, some people could look at it almost as a harm reduction model, but it's also that how do we keep people out of the hospital? How do we give them as much independence as possible? But they may or may not be managing something like this for the rest of their life, especially mm-hmm. when you start to look at um, something like schizophrenia, for example. Right. And how do we affirm them as a complex, interesting, wonderful human being um, and incorporate their strengths into a life and help them figure out the accommodations that they need to be successful, the support they need to be successful and how to advocate for themselves to be successful or how their families can help advocate for themselves to be successful. So I think that it's just a whole reframe from treatment resistant to like, okay, what's going on right now? And you know, what do we think we can do something about? And I even go back to having worked in you know, substance use treatment and having some of that history in my father, with my father and other people in my family, you know, accept the things we cannot change, change the things we can, wisdom to know the difference, right? It's so basic, but I don't know. I think that fundamentally underlies a lot of what we do. My favorite quote in that sort of vein is you can't buy bread at a hardware store. Right. (laughs) You can't. But it's staying attuned to to the person in treatment, but staying attuned to yourself as the clinician as well. And your word, Amy, pivot. Maybe there has to be a pivot. Yeah, we we oftentimes, if we feel that there's some kind of impasse or someone's plateaued, uh, we take a good hard look at ourselves and we ask ourselves, what what have we already tried? And what 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 have we not tried? I I telling a client, can you can you decide on a skill that might make this better for you. Like if they knew what skill, like they don't need you to help them select a skill, right? There's something we got to go deeper. We've got to look maybe at some family dynamics or some developmental issues that maybe we're not aware of, maybe some nonverbal kind of stuff that developed a long time ago. So you've got to get creative and you've got to be willing to explore. And sometimes Sometimes it's let let's try this. Let's see what happens. And if you have that trust with a client that let's let's try to mix this up a little differently. Let's try to let's approach this from a completely different way than we have before. Um, they will join you in that process of trying to figure it out. Um, another thought that I had as I was listening to the two of you is also that there there's a real paradigm shift, I think, in what we're doing at Galen Hope, where we aren't just looking for symptoms to resolve, for symptoms to get better. We're actually working towards wellness. And I I think that 
our field often defines people being well as that certain symptoms have diminished or gone away. And certainly you're going to feel better if your depression is diminished or if you are no longer feeling the urge to engage in an eating disorder. That that certainly is going to improve your quality of life. But stepping out of that that role of being a person who's very fragile and unwell and who needs a lot of support and assistance and moving into the role of being a well person, that's a whole different kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that's the piece of work that I found myself doing. I always called it the person building phase. When someone comes out of a treatment center, they're stabilized. There may be an absence of a lot of really problematic symptoms, but then what? Then they have to start to build a life. And that's completely overwhelming if you have not been engaging in your life, in your world, in your family, in your community for years, you don't even know where to start. And so that's the work that we're really doing, particularly in the latter part of someone's treatment is really helping them to take those firm steps towards creating a life for for themselves. And that's a part of the discharge process. You don't, you We're not going to talk about you stepping down into a lower level of care or out of treatment until you're actually doing it on a regular basis, that that we can see that these skills have generalized and that you're able to cope in a variety of situations, not just in the in the four walls of our treatment center. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add to this idea that it's about wellness and not just about the reduction of symptoms. One of the areas I think that the field is maybe finally starting to wake up to is that clients who are neurodivergent have been labeled as treatment resistant. In reality, Mm -hmm. those aren't symptoms. Those are traits. If Mm -hmm. you're autistic or you have ADHD, those are traits. That's a part of who you are. You can't make those go away. And it's actually really traumatizing for clients to be in settings where the focus is on making those traits go away. You know, it's um, it creates a lot of burnout and emotional dysregulation on the part of clients who've spent their life expending so much energy into attempting to mask or to fit into Mm -hmm. these neurotypical boxes, right? So that's an area I think we do good work, but also where our entire staff is really committed to um, learning more about and learning from the clients that come through our door that are autistic and their families. because it's it's just a new area in this field. So thankfully there's some great resources out there and we have a team that is um, embracing this nuance. Really speaks to the whole idea of wellness and looking at this full clinical pr- picture, not just as diagnoses, looking at our clients, not just as their diagnosis, but as a person. I've had a number of patients I've seen over the years who have had diagnoses more recently of autism, of ADHD, just having the diagnosis and being seen finally for who they are has been right. a yes. huge game changer. So I want to be yes. cognizant of time. We could talk for hours, I think the three of us. And I want I'd to- be happy to come back and do this yeah. again, especially because I'm obsessed now with Robin's dog and two cats. <laughs> 
So for our, <laughs> listeners, for our listeners who don't know, I have two Maine Coon cats. They are huge and a Portuguese water dog. They're my, my on-screen nice. therapy animals for my, for my folks. So Amy and Fiona, thank you so much. We will do this again and I hope to meet you in person, Amy, Fiona, I'll see more of you. And so anything you want to add last moment or this was fun. <laughs> thank you so much. I thank you. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, not only to talk about Galen Hope, but to also really talk about philosophically um, where I have always been in terms of the way I work with clients and, and to have this opportunity to, to bring that uh, same kind of work to a, a team and to a treatment center has been tremendous. So I just am so thankful that you gave us an opportunity to talk about this because I think it's it's really important. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for the NPRD podcast with Robin Kivit. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate and review us and share this valuable podcast with friends and family. Help and hope is found here. For more, just go to robinkivit.com. That's R-O-B-Y-N K-I-E-V-I-T dot com or check out the NPRD dot com.